0: Podcast, Podcast. 37. 30
1: 30 Stand by for action. It's a nice rescue. you to ARZone podcast number 37 with our special guest, Ruby Roth. Also joining us today will be fellow ARZone admins, Tim Geyer and Roger Yates. Ruby Roth is an artist, designer, a writer and a blogger who's lived vegan since 2003. Ruby's the author of two children's books, That's Why We Don't Eat Animals, published in 2009, and her new book, Vegan is Love, Having Heart and Taking Action. Ruby has referred to this book as a children's book of simple ideas, but at its core, it's really about democracy, supply and demand, and engaging ourselves in the public realm. That's Why We Don't Eat Animals has also been translated into numerous languages. Completing her degrees in Art and American Studies, Ruby has researched animal agriculture, health, nutrition, and the benefits of a plant-based diet for nearly a decade. Her books have been called the first in children's literature to take a candid, compassionate look at the emotional lives of other animals, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ruby to AR Zone today. Hi Ruby, thanks for being here with us today. My pleasure. Ruby, your first book, That's Why We Don't Eat Animals, was a political children's book. Because of that, how difficult was it for you to get it published? Did you encounter a lot of rejection at first?
2: Definitely. And I felt bad about how much paper everybody used to reject my first book. Um, But yeah, it was a hard sell, just because nobody had ever breached the subject of factory farming in a children's book before. Um, But I convinced my final publisher, who did end up publishing and distributing the book, that this was a growing community and more and more people were going to be raising vegan kids around the world and I knew it would find its audience. So they had the guts and the courage to believe me
1: and we put it out. Fantastic. Had that changed with Vegan Islam? Love?
2: I think that in the past several years since my first book came out, there has been a flood of vegan information into the market where we see vegan now as kind of a a hot word. I noticed even on a box of crackers, one of our favorite brands, um, whereas they were vegan before, now they advertise vegan on the front of their box. So it's become a selling point that more people are looking for. So it's not as scary to the mainstream as it was a few years ago. So I think we've seen a tremendous change just over the past few years.
1: I'd agree with that, thanks Ruby. Ruby, would you like to explain to us how it was that you became vegan and what led you to advocating for other animals as well?
2: Well, my journey started as a health experiment. I used to get colds and tonsillitis multiple times a year. And I thought that that was normal, just part of spring, summer, winter, cold season. And I dealt with it. And it was because of a friend who challenged me to try vegan as an experiment um, that I went vegan and mostly raw foods um, for a summer. And I lost weight. I had ample amounts of energy and I stopped getting sick. So that was a real turning point for me. I never went back to eating meat or dairy. And after that, I began to look into the underbelly of our meat and dairy industries and what was going on with food production and with animals. And I had always had an interest in the underbelly of history and countercultures. And so this was really right up my alley and the cognitive dissonance I felt between who I thought I was morally and ethically and what I was participating in was just mind-boggling. And witnessing the footage really solidified my commitment to the lifestyle. Uh,
0: Hi, Ruby. This is uh, Roger Ace here. Um, This uh, friend who challenged you to go vegan, were they what you were – Describe as a as an ethical vegan or were they themselves health vegans in, in other words um, Quite a lot of air zone members are interested in this kind of transition between You know say a, a health vegan or an environmental vegan to become an ethical vegan and I've seen in the news Broadcast that you've done that you've now said that your your lifestyle in terms of your diet is now kind of it, um, You know it corresponds with your values Yeah, um, and so in that sense you know how do they how do those things come together you you came in as a health issue and then you then you became informed informed on the ethics is that is how that how it worked
2: Yeah that's that's the journey for me but now I don't see the separation between health and ethics it's all information that I didn't have before that I do now so I don't separate it into ethics or animals, it's all on the same spectrum for me. And I find that when I go to animal rights conferences, there's less emphasis on health, which is somewhat bothersome to me because I think that if we are healthy, we are more committed to the lifestyle in the long run. And when I go to raw food conferences, which used to be vegan and are now, you know, seemingly incorporating some raw milk and even raw dairy, uh, raw meat into what they're preaching, then I find myself on the animal rights side of that. So I'm always in the middle. And to me, it's not one or the other. It's really both.
0: Yeah, so you've you've married the two things together. On that thing about the raw, are you saying that the you know in some of these kind of raw kind of communities now that that they're eating raw meat with what you know uncooked meat? Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, there are some people who are advocating raw foods, and I think because there's been kind of a backlash of people worried about protein and whatnot that um, to keep people raw foodists some of the leaders are incorporating colostrum and raw dairy and even some raw fish and raw meat into the protocol not everybody um, but there are definitely some of those leaders who are doing that and i think that was a big disappointment to me because the the raw food movement for a long time was a vegan movement yes indeed
1: Ruby, Vegan is Love seems to have a broader scope, than that's why we don't eat animals. What, if anything, do you see as the differences between the two books, and was that something that you set out to do?
2: The first book is really about the whys of a plant-based lifestyle, whereas the second book, Vegan is Love, is really about the how. So in the first book, I talk about the emotional lives of animals, factory farming, the environment and endangered species, all in regards to how we eat. And the second book is really about choices that anyone and everyone can make on a daily basis to impact the public realm in a positive manner.
1: Did you have the same reception for the first book as you've had for the second one?
2: The support has been tremendous from around the world. Um, I've heard from the vegan and vegetarian communities in every country of the world, and it's been fantastic. At the same time, both books met with controversy and outrage from parents. Most of the opposition comes simply from people who are not familiar with the benefits of veganism, And so it is somewhat understandable just because even though plant-based diets have been around for centuries, they're relatively new to the mainstream. So it's understandable that there would be a lot of fear and questions um, about abandoning conventional standard diet.
0: Yes, indeed. I I want to put my sociologist hat on uh, for a while, Ruby, and and, uh, you mentioned that uh, your book has created some controversy. And um, from a sociological point of view, that's not surprising because it's um, a fairly bold attack on some of the core beliefs in terms of uh, our relations with other animals. Now, as a sociologist, in terms of research that I've done, I've looked at the socializing function of children's books about other animals, including the other animals that are used on farms. Uh, and so even now in the 21st century, I still look around the bookshops and I see that the norm is to depict small and entirely free range in the kind of original meaning of the term farms with, you know, they, they've got smiling farmers, they've got the, the other animals scratching around the place, et cetera. They're all happily living together in their various homes. And we're all familiar with this kind of con- uh, socially constructed lie, if you like. There are no cages with these books.
2: Right.
0: Uh, you know, there, there are no suggestions of the slaughterhouse in these books. And so you get parents generation after generation conniving with this, and this is a kind of society wide lie really, and therefore they bolstered the ide- ideology of speciesism and they bolstered the ideology of uh, human supremacy yes. uh, in one book that I looked at, for instance, a horse was to be re- replaced by a tractor, hmm. and the uh, the ending the happy ending, if you like, was provided by the fact that the ownership of the horse was transferred from farmer to farmer's son and then he was shown to be completely de- delighted because he con- he continued to work on the farm and so that's the kind of norm if you like your kind of books are a direct challenge to that kind of thing that a direct challenge to the dominant paradigm and it challenges the socially constructed norms so you presumably have not really been surprised by the reaction, in fact you probably expected uh, what what you got, is that, is that right?
2: Yes, I expected some controversy and I really welcome it because it makes me think about everything that I do and each case of opposition provides me um, an analysis to look into how we come to think the way we do and how we come to believe what we do about food and animals and children. So the most fascinating part to me about people's outrage with this book is that by demonizing it or calling it scary, we are admitting that what we do to animals is scary, too scary to even talk about with children. So to me, that says we know as adults on some level that we loved animals as children We were completely curious and connected to them. And that as we grow up, we have to disconnect and we become socialized to the norm of eating meat and dairy. And so to me, people's outrage is really just about admitting that we know, but we want to remain willfully ignorant and impose that ignorance on our children. To me, that's completely unacceptable. And if we look back through history, we all know what happens when the world is left to the willfully ignorant.
0: Yes, it's it's interesting, though, isn't it, this kind of generational interaction in in the sense that um, I suppose from the parents' point of view, they're interested in kind of protecting their children from knowledge which they think is going to be harmful. Uh, And I know that, you know, you've got a particular take on the fact that, you know, the children can, as as it were, take it.
2: In the creation of this book, I looked at a lot of history of the concept of childhood itself. And I found that here in the West, we have a very Victorian view of childhood. It was actually the wealthy people of the Victorian age who began to protect their children from the adult world. And they were taken care of by governesses and nannies. And um, it was made sure that they were more seen and not heard and they were obedient and polite. And so yes, I think indeed, yeah. we've inherited that view. And we're very skeptical and scared here to, to damage this innocent view of the world that we think children inherently possess. But the reality is that there's no universally accepted idea of what childhood is. And in different countries throughout the world, um, there's different ideas of what kids can handle. There's some African tribes who believe that children are born into this world with divine capabilities that adults don't have. And so they're treated with respect for those abilities and this connection to a divine world. I
0: mean, it's it's all relative. Yes, I'd I'd agree with that. And um, you know, not not only are the illustrations in your book very striking, and the, I mean, they're very beautiful, you know, but the, in terms of this kind of scare thing, I think really that's just you know the fact that when when people ask you whether you're going to scare children, I think they're really asking you whether your arguments are morally persuasive, aren't they really?
2: Yes, and I think most parents fears are based upon not knowing what to do next if the child doesn't want to eat animals anymore. It's really a practical fear about not knowing what they're going to cook for dinner or not knowing if their kids are going to get the right nutrients that they need. But if parents are willing to examine those questions that they have and realize that this has been done for centuries and that there's a proper way to transition and that there's answers to everybody's questions about every nutrient, then the transition and the knowledge gained really opens up an entire
1: world of benefit.
0: Yes, thanks for that very much.
1: Ruby, in regard to some of the criticism about the books, about the topic of eating animals being too sensitive a topic to discuss with young children. One of the things that you've said is that the more that we can trust that children can handle this information, the better equipped they'll be to love deeply, think critically, and act responsibly, which I think is a wonderful quote. Given the criticisms that there have been, what are the ways you might propose to get parents, teachers, and others to trust young people with this information?
2: Well, that's a great question, and I think that, Everybody these days is somewhat interested in sustainability and a greener future. Everybody's okay with talking about recycling and flipping off the light switches and turning off the water while we brush our teeth. But it's really about giving kids better tools and engaging them in the public realm So I think that the path to a greener future really relies on engaging a new generation. It's really up to parents and teachers to help pass along this information. And they need to realize that when we speak frankly to children, and we don't need to be over emotional or scary about it, but kids really pay attention because they feel like they're being let in on a secret I think it's really more about adults' willingness to share than it is about children's capabilities of learning. Kids learn when we teach them. My stepdaughter knows all about food and all about animals because we've included her in conversations and never shied away from giving her the information she needs to make educated choices.
1: I agree with you, Ruby. I think children of that age are very eager to get the information. I they are, they are, and
2: it makes perfect sense to them. And Absolutely. I think that's why they're not scared. That's really comes down to why children aren't fearful about this book, because one of the strongest messages in the book is that we don't have to fear anything that we have the power to change. And on every single page of the book, there is
1: um,
2: a positive affirmation about action we can take to help
1: the one thing I noticed about the books. There's there's a a lot of positivity.
2: Thank
3: you. (laughs) Has there been a lot of pushback from public libraries or uh, major retail outlets that would normally be carrying uh, books directed towards children that are saying that they won't carry the book or have there been any criticisms from the sort of institutional side of this?
2: I think the institutional side is a great support. And librarians are really some of my favorite people on the planet because they love information. They see the value in having all kinds of different views available for everybody. And I think we can all agree that more knowledge is always better than less knowledge. So I think it's the same with bookstores and retailers. Everybody wants to carry books that contribute different viewpoints to the world. The book industry has been really supportive.
0: I saw a recent CNN interview uh, which you did and uh, did very well in uh, I might add Thank you. but the presenter seemed completely incapable of avoiding bringing the word vegetarian into a discussion about your book
2: mm.
0: in fact she she hints that you yourself are an advocate of uh, vegetarianism as well as veganism so I'm wondering kind of what's your take on that you know what was that meant to act to clarify the topic for the viewers, you know, the CNN viewers? Or was it simply to introduce a a, um, familiar word into a news item? Or maybe it was just an example of lazy journalism. I just wonder what your take is on when that kind of thing happens to you because you're talking about veganism and they bring in vegetarianism. What's going on there?
2: I think that's just a matter of strategy. And although she doesn't talk about it, the news anchor... Randy Kay is actually vegetarian, so I think it was just strategic on her part to help her audience uh, understand what veganism is in a more in, in a, with a word that they might be more familiar with. I live in Los Angeles, so everybody knows what vegan is here, <laughs> you know, but when you go into Middle America, not everybody is familiar with the word vegan. So we still find ourselves helping people um, define the word.
0: So, uh, you know, have you found in your, you know, in your negotiation with regard to the book or, uh, in, you know, in relation to editors or whatever, that there are some people or some areas maybe where vegan is still a scare word uh, compared with vegetarian? Is, is that what you're saying?
1: I think
2: veganism is still relatively new to the mainstream. I know with my book, in the very, very beginnings of really both books, there was a lot of discussion about making it more palatable to the mainstream, maybe by not having the word vegan or vegetarian in the titles and making it more about earthlings, you know, something along those lines. But I really felt that the movement was growing And that anybody who picked it up was going to find out on the first few pages that these were vegan and vegetarian books. So I didn't want to cater to the mainstream, but rather support this growing network of people around the world who are doing a lot of work to make the word vegan not so scary to to the public.
0: Well, you know, I think I think that's great. You know, it's great that you you kind of uh, toughed it out, if you like, to uh, in, in those negotiations with editors or or, or whoever you are dealing with. Uh, I'm a great supporter of the the fact that the the movement has um, you know, has got veganism now as the moral baseline, or at least in some respects. And so, you know, I, I applaud that. That's great. And thanks for that.
1: Thank you. Ruby, I'd like to ask a question about your um, more adult artwork, which reflects the inner lives of women and seems to focus mostly on the feminine form. Do you regard yourself as a feminist? And what do you see as the relationship between feminism and animals' rights issues?
2: Well, there's so many different kinds of feminism. I can't say that I'm one or the other or that I don't see all kinds of points of views, but I think that when you are somebody who discovers oppression and fights oppression that you start to see it across the board and it it doesn't live within any boundaries that we can see whether it's women or immigrants or people of color or um or it lives within racism or classism or labor Oppression becomes oppression across all kinds of different categories. So I see myself now as not necessarily belonging to one group, but all groups who are fighting oppression.
3: There's a criticism of the vegan movement that it's a white, middle class, privileged sort of thing. I'm I'm sure you've heard that criticism that, you know, we can afford to be vegan. So it's not really fair for us to tell people who may not have the resources that we do in this country that they ought to do what we're doing I'm wondering if you've seen that in your travel, if you've traveled abroad if you've seen that and if you s- if you see the are there differences in the attitudes that people have towards veganism across the world
2: that's a great question there's so many issues in there um, my books are just starting to be translated into multiple languages so I haven't toured with them yet but I get plenty of that discussion just here domestically. I had a discussion with a friend of mine who is an African American man. We went to college together and he's realizing now he was telling me that he always saw veganism, mindfulness meditation as a very white thing and he could never get into it because he felt like it didn't apply to him. But he's seeing now that that was, you know, only to his own personal detriment that he kept those things at a distance from himself. And if we look at the history of plant-based peoples in the world and throughout history, it was not white people. <laughs> you know, we were we're talking about Buddhists, many Buddhists, many Hindus, many Seventh Day Adventists. Um, Black Israelites, many Rastafari, and it was not a privileged lifestyle to eat plants. In fact, most of the poorest people across the world are eating a plant-based diet. So I think that's an excuse that many people use. It's too expensive or it's a privileged white thing in order to disqualify it. Because really, veganism is can be done on any economic level and really what's expensive are doctors bills <laughs> <laughs> so if we look at it as an investment in ourselves no matter how much money we have we can really see it as something that we pay now or we pay later
3: yeah agreed thank you, thank you.
2: but I think that's really interesting because that point alone It brings up so many issues that I think people really need to pay attention to when they find themselves ambivalent towards veganism. A lot of times it's a race issue, it's a class issue, it's a gender issue. I know that I identified with being a tomboy and having a lot of guy friends, and that was something, meat eating was something that connected me. To my male friends before I was vegan and I took a certain pride in being a girl that liked meat and I see how narrow-minded that was of me now that I can look back on that and see what tunnel vision that is to not think about it in the bigger picture
0: we got going back to the point that Tim just raised about um, the kind of world tour as it were and you were saying about the books being translated you know, in, in some senses, the the, the the movement in the West needs to try to help any, uh, you know, emerging Chinese movement, it seems to me, because it's such a important place. Uh, so is China one of the places where you're getting your book uh, translated into, you know, you know the, the language?
2: They have not picked it up in China yet. This is a massive population that definitely needs the information. There's so many abuses going on in China, you know, within even Chinese medicine and their use of bears and bear bile. They call them moon bears. They're kept in cages on their backs their entire lives. And they forcefully excrete the bile for use in Chinese medicine. Um, so, And with the fur, fur farms, and there's so much to address there. And I think that what one of the most beautiful things about the vegan movement is how connected we all are around the world. So it's growing everywhere.
3: How much do you use the internet? You're talking about connected around the world. Do you see the internet as being a place that where people are coming together or do you sometimes it seems that the internet is a place where people join little groups where they can all agree with each other about the things they already believe. Is that just is that just me seeing the glass half empty?
2: No, I think that does happen, but what's great about veganism is that it really fires up both sides. I find that it's um, when I do an article or an interview, we have a lot of vegan commenters who get fired up in support, and we always have meat eating commenters who who also get fired up for different reasons so I think the internet has been an amazing tool to expose a lot of people from you know I've heard from military men to militant vegans to moms across the world who are um, chiming in on the subject so I think the the internet has been a great tool to spread the word and um, both sides pay attention
0: in terms of the internet i suppose you you as a kind of author and uh, illustrator and uh, painter you've pr- presumably got to have the internet in mind now in the sense that it's not just a question of you know publishing in paper now i presume you've got to think about all the different formats uh, that are available now to you you know like ebooks and uh, kindle and all the rest of it and so i i imagine from your point of view just just in terms of the producer of uh, you know, of, of, of a piece of work, um, it's, it's rather more complicated now, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the internet has changed all industries, I believe, um, especially music and publishing. So it's been fantastic for me. It makes it harder for the publishers, um, but... In making it harder, we find creative solutions like Kindle and e-books. My books are not available yet because I think with children's books and illustration, people still like to have physical books in their hands to look at. But it has certainly opened up the publishing market.
0: But one final question that I wanted to ask you, um, Ruby, was... What kind of feedback do you get from children? You know, is is it kind of, you know, emotional for you, emotional for them? Do, do, you know, what what kind of things do the children say to you in terms of what your work has done for them in terms of their understanding?
2: You know, I love talking to children because I find their insights to be so fascinating and so entertaining and wonderful. I just had my book launch party here in Los Angeles, and I spoke to a seven-year-old girl who told me, um, I used to eat meat, but then I decided to make a big change in my life. And there was another little boy who could not wait to tell me about the moth that he had rescued that very morning. You know, I remember when I was teaching in the classroom and talking about factory farming, that there was one little girl, a third grader, who related factory farming to what she was learning about slavery in her history class. That will always stick with me because it just proves the profound insight and connections that kids are able to make on their own when you provide them information. It's been absolutely incredible and it is emotional because children represent the future of our nation's states and I can see from the opposition from the meat and dairy industries themselves about my book that they know for a fact that educating youth is a direct threat to the continuation of their long-hidden practices.
3: That's quite interesting to me. I, I read last week, I read Henry Salt's book. Henry Salt wrote a book in 1892 about animal rights and he advocated for educating children he said we can try to educate adults but it's really hard to change people when they've reached that age but if we can reach the children then maybe we can make a difference so 100, 120 years later maybe maybe we're getting there
2: i think that's absolutely true and i was just looking in the past few days at what is available to children and what we teach them about you know the fact that they can We reinforce all these positive messages to them, like they can be whatever they want when they grow up and they are the future of the world and they can change the future, but we don't give them the real tools as to how to do that and how to maintain the love of nature and animals that they feel as children for the rest of their lives. So I think everybody who's involved with the green movement who is teaching kids about recycling and turning off the lights, um, if they are leaving out the discussion of veganism, we are hindering what children are actually capable of. And in hindering what children are capable of, we are hindering what we, what our nations are capable of. We already have everything we need with the information and the technology to revolutionize the landscapes of our countries. All we need to do is begin with ourselves.
1: Ruby, what's next for you? Do you have any plans to write future books?
2: I do have um, several books in mind. So as soon as this wave of publicity um, lightens, I will begin my work on some new ideas that I have.
1: Excellent. I look forward to it.
3: Ruby, I'm going to ask you one last question. I, first, I want to I want to tell you I agree with you. There's something about holding an actual book in your hands that I just I just can't get to the electronic versions. And so <laughs> I, I I appreciate what you said about that. But do you have any recommendations for what books adults might read if there are adults that are coming to these ideas for the first time? Do you have any recommendations, or can you tell us what might have helped you when you were first beginning to think about this?
2: I think everybody should go to their libraries and explore the animal cognition section of the Dewey Decimal System. The science and the research about the cognitive abilities of animals and the emotional lives of animals is fascinating. And I think that we, when we are exposed to that information, it really changes the way we think about all life across the planet. Um, that section and books like *The Food Revolution* by John Robbins, books of, by David Wolfe, who's a vegan raw foodist, um, they're really eye-opening. When you, and you know, what seems what can seem to be this tiny pebble of veganism for people when they're first getting into it, really turns out to be a mountain when you start looking into this world that you never knew about. So there's much to explore and answers to everybody's questions, and I just encourage everyone that instead of thinking of veganism as abstinence, we think of it as an entire world to be gained.
3: Excellent. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: you. I, I strongly agree with that. The The idea that um, that we're depriving ourselves is um, is never something that I've ever subscribed to. Um, going back to the books that um, that Tim raised, uh, is the philosophy of animal rights important to you? For example, you know the work of uh, people like Tom Reagan or Gary Francio and John Denea. Have uh, they been instrumental in your in your path towards where you are now?
2: Yes, everybody's everybody's work and words has been an inspiration. My personal journey has taken me to the ideas of many people, though, from um, economists to religious leaders and spiritual leaders, all kinds of experts in their field. Like I said, I love the library, and I explore one end to the other when I go, and everything, everybody's expertise helps me further justify and explore my journey.
1: Ruby, I'd like to congratulate you on the success of both of your books and also to thank you for helping to get the message of peace and of veganism out to so many young children and possibly even as importantly to their parents. I'd also like to thank you for th- taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's my
2: pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank Thank you, you. Ruby. That's
0: great. Brilliant.